1: I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. Government agencies need help. With tightening budgets, agency leaders must make difficult resource decisions that go to the heart of mission effectiveness. For 20 years, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Program Support Center, PSC, has sought to provide value-added services that support federal agencies' business operations so these agencies can focus on their core missions. Initially, PSC was established to reduce HHS's annual spending and to increase the quality of its administrative services. Today, PSC offers over 40 services to HHS and other federal agencies, providing the essential functions needed to keep government agencies operating. What are the benefits of adopting a shared services model? How does PSC manage the business of government? And what is PSC doing to differentiate its products and services? We will explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Paul Bartley, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Program Support at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and Director of its Program Support Center. Paul, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you. Great to be here. What is the mission of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Program Support Center, PSC, and why was it established and how has it evolved to date? The mission of the
2: Program Support Center is to provide a full range of shared services to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and other U.S. federal agencies, enabling them to better focus on their core missions. So really, our mission is to help others fulfill their missions. And the administrative burden uh, are the things that we concentrate on. We want our customers to Concentrate on curing cancer or keeping food safe or helping the environment. Whatever the mission of the agency is, our job, we feel, is to take away the distractions, take away those things that can be done centrally, that can be done more efficiently,
1: more uh, in a quality way. So, operationally, how is the Program Support Center organized? The mix and size of its product and services portfolio. What's your overall budget, number of folks that work with you, and how do you fund your operations? The Program Support Center has about an $800
2: million budget, about 3,000 folks involved, uh, about 600 federal employees, 2,400 contractors. We've been around for about 20 years now, started in 1995 under HHS Secretary Donna Shalala, If you remember back in in the 90s, we had the Reinventing Government Initiative. This was part of that. PSC was stood up as a non-appropriated entity. We are uh, under a working capital fund type setup, so we receive no appropriations. Every dollar we get comes from our customers, who many of them are appropriated, but we ourselves get no appropriations. And I kind of like that method of funding. It forces us to be very responsive to our customers. We know that in order to stay in business, we have to keep them happy. We have to make sure we're being responsive and meeting their needs. So we listen to them and we pay a lot of attention to them. PSC is located in, primarily in the Washington, D.C. area from a management and leadership perspective perspective. However, we do have locations throughout the country, nearly 350. One of the reasons for that is that we operate a string of health clinics, occupational health clinics for federal employees. So, a number of a large number of our locations are health clinics, but in terms of office space,
1: we're primarily in the Washington DC area. So, I'd like to focus more on your uh, specific responsibilities as a director of the Program Support Center. What are your duties and your responsibilities? As the director of PSC, I'm essentially the
2: chief operating officer. I've got five SES level executives who run PSC's five lines of business or portfolios as we call them. Those five portfolios are financial management, federal occupational health, which is the folks that run the clinics. Uh, We have a procurement portfolio, Real estate and logistics and the fifth group is called administrative operations. And it's type it's the type of thing like call centers, mail and publishing, transit benefits, kinda of all of the cats and dogs that don't fit into one of those other four major groups. And my job is to create a vision and make sure that everybody in the organization is focused on what I said earlier, which is meeting the needs of our customers. So I'm kind of the cheerleader-in-chief. I've got a lot of great folks who keep the trains running and deliver to customers. I I see my role more as kind of providing support, explaining what we do to the higher-ups, making sure we're connected in with the HHS mission, and and essentially managing uh, through my operators.
1: Yeah, before I get into challenges, actually, you just raised something I wanted to get a clarification on. How much of your portfolio, if you would, comes from HHS, percentage-wise? About 40% of
2: our business is HHS, and that's a little bit misleading. The way we express our revenue— is a little bit distorted in in the contracting area. A lot of our revenue comes from acquisition work, Mm -hmm. and in in the case of contracts that we let for customers outside of HHS, we count that in our revenue as the entire value of the contract. So if you you account for that factor or take that factor out, it's more like 90% of our work is HHS, but the numbers get skewed if you look purely at, an, at us in an accounting sense. So, I always like to make that clear. The dollars uh, are about 60% outside and 40% inside HHS, but the actual work, folks doing uh, activity is, is a lot more
1: slanted towards HHS. It's a good distinction. I just wanted to check that. So, uh, switching gears a bit, um, what are your top uh, management challenges that you face and how have you sought to address them?
2: Well, as a shared service provider, we're constantly trying to convince uh, people who aren't using us to come to us and use our services. We believe that in most cases, we offer a better product than uh, agencies can provide to themselves on their own. And I'll give you an example there. We operate a string of 300 occupational health clinics around the country. They are in various uh, multi-tenant and some single-tenant federal buildings. We think we've got that down. We've been doing that activity for a very long time. We've got experts who keep an eye on it. We could stand up a clinic quickly um, if needed. We know how to staff it. We know uh, how much you should be paying for it. If an agency comes along and tries to do that on their own, either through a contract or hiring their own employees, they're probably not going to have all the lessons learned that we have. So, So one of my challenges is really just getting people to consider using us. And sometimes in the health area, it's pretty obvious we're part of HHS. You know, seems like we probably ought to know something about health. In some of these other areas, transit benefits is one. We have a fantastic product. Most people don't think of HHS when they think transit benefits. So we have to figure out how to reach them with our message. The other challenges I have are really just making sure that we're providing great service at a good price. Nobody's going to want to use us if they think they can do it, uh, perform these activities on their own cheaper or better. So uh, we actually have to deliver that. It's great to talk about it, but to actually show customers that we have the experts in-house, we can do this in a good way, that's something we think about every single day. The cost is a factor, I found in my nine years here that, honestly, uh, folks are a lot more interested in the quality. Um, If they can get better quality, they're going to go elsewhere. So that's something we really keep an eye on.
1: Um, I'd also like to understand your leadership style and some of the key principles that continue to inform the way you lead. Would you outline some of those principles for us, maybe perhaps illustrate their use?
2: Yes. the. One of the things that I learned when I was at the Voice of America is that you really have to have a vision, and you need to articulate that vision if you want people to follow you, if you want them to uh, get to a a certain place. One of my favorite quotes is from Alice in Wonderland, and the quote is, if you don't know where you're going, any path will take you there. (laughs) And, And it sounds really obvious, but I think a lot of times when folks come into a new job, they sometimes they just keep the trains running or they've, their boss sort of has an idea of some tasks that they have to do, but they don't really take a, a look at the big picture. And my advice to those in leadership would be figure out where you're going and make sure to communicate that to people. Uh, and you can't communicate it once. You've got to do it over and over and over. And that kind of goes into my second leadership style or, or principle, and that is – you really need to inspire staff. It's it's very important to know where you're going, but it's it's even better to be the cheerleader, to be the champion, and get people excited about your idea. And, and kind of hand in hand with that is developing your people. One of the programs that we have at the PSC is a rotational program for our GS-15 service directors. And every two years, they change jobs. They move from one part of the organization to another. So perhaps uh, somebody in the accounting area would move over to health or health to mail and publishing, mail and publishing to grant payments. We literally pick them up and transport them to another world. Of course, they're utilizing the same skills that they used in the other Area of PSC, whether it's managing or leading or budgeting, all these things you have to do as a as a great supervisor and manager. But we change the subject matter on them, and it's a great way to develop them. But it's also a great way to share best practices across the organization. Another thing I would uh, recommend is to think strategically. And I know there's a whole industry based on this this idea that you you really have to concentrate on what's important, not just what's urgent. Uh, I think in the business that I'm in, we are constantly pulled from one direction to another. You know, When you're in policy, you can sit back and think great thoughts a lot of times. But when you're in operations, it's how pleased was the person with your last transaction. So we're constantly pulled from one thing to the next. And I, I really try to take time myself and make sure my folks have um, the time to think strategically and think about how we're doing things and where we're headed, not just
1: deliver the next widget. What are the strategic priorities for HHS's Program Support Center? We will ask its director, Paul Bartley, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition, I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org.
0: What is the What Works Clearinghouse? How does the National Center for Education Evaluation and Regional Assistance within the U.S. Department of Education ensure the widespread dissemination of its research findings? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and much more with Joy Lesnick, Acting Commissioner NCEE within the U.S. Department of Education. Tune in Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.
1: Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Paul Bartley, director of the Program Support Center within the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. So, Paul, would you outline uh, for us your strategic vision for the Program Support Center within HHS, and what are some of your key priorities that you're focusing on? Our priority at
2: the moment is to exceed our customer expectations. We need to make sure that our current customers are happy And singing our praises. I would love to grow the Program Support Center. In fact, we've talked a lot about that over the years and have even instituted growth goals. But we're not going to grow unless we have happy customers that can talk to their fellow agencies about us. So that is number one getting the things we do uh, now done right. And I believe that will help us grow. There's a whole effort underway right now at the OMB level around shared services and growing this and bringing activities into this model that I think we're going to get to later in the program. But that's never going to happen if the centers are not producing. So my number one priority is to make sure that my customers are happy
1: and that we're meeting their needs. So as a follow-up, what are the key internal and external drivers and trends that uh, have shaped and informed your strategic direction. And maybe you could briefly highlight the core initiatives you are pursuing uh, to achieve your priorities. Sure. There are some significant drivers that have led
2: to this idea of shared services. And if you look back over the last probably two or three, maybe four decades, technology has played a huge part in that I like to talk about payroll because, number one, it's one of the activities that the government has successfully put into the shared services model. But it's also something that most people understand pretty well, right? You get a paycheck. Somebody has to compute it and make sure the money ends up in your bank account. Fairly straightforward. Let's look at payroll through the ages. If you go back to Maybe the 40s or 50s, you've got a clerk. Perhaps they're using pen and paper, perhaps something a little more sophisticated. But there's really not a lot of leverage around that activity. You've got to have a staff that can perform this activity. Um, So the idea that every unit would have a payroll person at some level, maybe it's one to 100 employees or, or whatever it is, it doesn't make sense to centralize that you you've got to have that kind of spread throughout the organization but if you introduce technology and these tools that allow us to make computations especially repetitive ones like that over and over it comes to a point where every unit having payroll staff makes no sense at all uh and this is just one area of of administrative operations if you look across the gamut, uh, financial transactions, accounting, a number of, of other uh, activities that organizations just have to do, whether they're government or private sector, or big, small technology is really driving the ability to centralize. And shared services is the answer to, I think, a little bit of of too much of the balance going to centralization. and And what I mean by that is, shared services is supposed to be at least listening to your customers and making sure you're meeting their needs. It's not a power grab by the center or or by headquarters to take activities and dictate them to the users. And this is something that we keep in mind every day at the program support center. It's great that we're we're able to bring in these activities. It's great that we're growing, but we must remember every day that if we're not keeping our customers happy and meeting their needs, then we're failing. And that's uh, whether it's payroll or something even more complicated than that. Um, if you don't get it right, you're it's going to get taken away from you.
1: So actually, you know, shared services is a concept. I, I, I'd like to dig a little deeper there. Could you define that concept for us? What exactly is a shared services model? And explain the purpose of adopting such a model within the federal space.
2: Well, as I mentioned, the idea of shared services is really not new. Um, It's a lot more widespread in a lot of other organizations, especially in the private sector. If you look at the top, you know, Fortune 100, Fortune 500, you'll notice that virtually all of them have this model in play. And a lot of universities and public sector organizations are starting to adopt it, too. So, I think the government is a little bit late to the game. Uh, we're catching up fairly fast. I define shared service shared services as a high-value, low-cost delivery model for the effective and efficient delivery of back-office support services. I mentioned centralization earlier. I think that's an ingredient, but it's by no means uh, sufficient to describe this uh, model. It's way more than centralization. Uh, In fact, if it's done right, you allow for at least a little bit of customization at the edges so that your customers are getting what
1: they need. You've been in the role leading uh, in some leadership form or another with uh, the Program Support Center, a shared services uh, organization. I'd like your perspective on this. How has shared services evolved in the federal government over the past, say, two decades? And how how are they related to or different from... Other types of business models folks might be familiar with, working capital funds, franchise funds, and lines of business, like the HR HR line of business or something like that. Could you give us a sense? I see all of the things you just mentioned, the working capital funds, the
2: franchise funds, lines of business as precursors to full shared services. And by the way, the really cool term, if you, you know, are... Up on this stuff is global business services, and the and the, so that's the next wave, the next phase of this, which we can talk about later. but many companies uh, don't even like the term shared services anymore because that's so passe and there's a a little bit of marketing going on here, but there's also a kernel of of truth that we can talk about that later but but this is truly a journey, and I think that if you look at the administrations throughout the decades. Uh, I mentioned we were started under the Clinton administration. There are other groups that go further back than that. Uh, I know uh, I've talked to some folks in government who mentioned initiatives in the Reagan administration to centralize, to more, make things more efficient. So the the working capital funds from ages ago, the franchise fund funds from the last 15 years or so, and the line of business uh concept that was a Bush administration artifact were all efforts in the same direction, I would argue. And I would also argue that regardless of who our next president is, I think that we will see this effort continue in some form or another. If I know anything about the way this works, we'll have a new name and some kind of cool you know, way of describing it, but it will be the same idea. And the idea is that... Government performs the same function over and over and over in slightly different ways, and it's very inefficient. And we've got to find a way to consolidate many of these activities and yet
1: meet the missions of all the agencies that we're trying to serve. So I'd like to switch gears a bit. What's your strategy to drive growth and increase your customer base? And more particularly, would you tell us about your annual customer satisfaction survey and its administration? And what lessons you have gleaned from the survey to enhance uh, or inform your uh, services and products? Well, I've mentioned
2: several times that customer satisfaction is paramount to us. Uh, The only way we're going to grow, the only way we're going to increase our customer base is through happy customers. Uh, Word of mouth is the best way to sell, and, and it's one of the primary ways we have to sell. I mean, we don't take ads in the newspaper. We're not out there doing typical sales at like a private sector organization. The Annual Customer Satisfaction Survey is one way that we know what our customers are thinking. It's an annual event, and it drills down into all 44 of our activities. The Program Support Center offers 44 different distinct activities, we put together lists of our customers in each of the areas, and we talk to them. We send them a a survey and try to find out how are we doing, what could we do uh, to make things better. And one of the things that we've learned is kind of interesting over the years we've uh, refined this. There's really two, two distinct sets of customers when you're in an environment like we are. And we call one group the users and one group the buyers. So if you think about our occupational health clinics around the country, if you are talking about an employee walking through the doors, getting a flu shot, getting their blood pressure taken, whatever it might be, that's a user. We really need to make sure they're happy that we didn't stick the needle in too far or, or, you know, make them feel uncomfortable or whatever it might be. So it's important to measure that aspect. How do they feel? But even more important is the buyer of the service. Somewhere in the agencies that we support, a decision was made to use us as the clinic provider. And that may be an administrative officer. It may be somebody in HR. It may be somebody at headquarters. It really varies quite a bit across the landscape. But it's a different role than the user. This person actually may never walk into a clinic. Their use of the clinic may be uh, different. They want to know statistics. They want to know how many employees are using it, how many of them got flu shots. It's it's more of a reporting Interest, sure, I hope they go in and and feel good about what we do on an individual basis, but they're really at the enterprise level or the product level, so we measured their satisfaction as well so there's a survey that goes to them uh different questions we do we don't ask you know how did you feel walking in a clinic? We would ask about something they would care about, how is our billing uh are we doing things timely? Are we answering questions are we reacting to your needs. So just having that sophistication to know that there's two different audiences uh, is something that we've had to learn. Uh, When we started out with this survey, I remember, we used to send it to everybody, same survey to everybody, whether they were signed in agreement or actually were a user. And I think some people struggled with how to answer the question. So, so we've split it now and made it two different uh, surveys, but it's helped us a
1: lot. So you kind of hinted at that earlier on, but I'd like to get a sense of uh, the composition of your customer base. Um, what can you tell us about it? And, and, and more particularly with that composition, what are you doing to build the program support center brand as a provider of choice?
2: Yeah, as I mentioned, if you look at us in an accounting sense, about 60% of our dollars come from outside the Department of Health and Human Services. But a lot of that is acquisition-related funding that, that goes towards contracts. So if you look at the pure activity, um, 90% of our customers are uh, – or of our activity is internal let me talk about that ten percent that's outside. one fifth of my group is federal occupational health the the folks that provide those clinics that I keep mentioning. We uh, have quite a bit of reach across government in the health area, and if you think about it, it makes sense. Most folks think that a part of HHS is probably you know the expert on health as opposed to um, maybe another contracting firm or another agency that's that's trying to develop a capability. So federal occupational health serves all cabinet level agencies to one degree or another and a majority of the smaller independent agencies. So if you go to agriculture or interior or state, there's at least some part of it that's using federal occupational health services. So our reach is, is quite great there. Um, People ask me who our customers are, and and it's really just a list of every agency in government. It may not be every single employee of that agency, but it will be at least some part of it. How do we become the brand of choice? Again, it goes back to providing quality. But we're also pretty smart about marketing in the sense of making people aware of what we do. I've mentioned the health clinics uh, over and over today. Um, There are a lot of things that are related to the clinics that we do. Medical reviews. If you're a law enforcement agency, you've got to screen the folks that you're hiring, and then there's an annual requirement to make sure that they're up to snuff. We provide that for a great number of the law enforcement community. We can do it for others as well. We can do it for inspector staffs. We can do it for um, the gun carrying folks, whatever it might be. So, our our products lend themselves to uh, each other and it's important for us to talk about those that aren't obvious like that. So the most efficient use of our clinic isn't to have the nurse sitting there waiting for you to come in for a flu shot. It's to do that and also have hearing tests done there and eye tests and maybe accommodation work. So we're trying to fill up the time of the folks and, and the space. We're, we're really trying to pack in as much service as we can to
1: each location. I I know I talked to you the last time you joined me about the uh, SMART Save, Manage, and Assess Our Resources Together program that you folks have been pursuing. Do you have any updates there? What's going on? Could you tell us a little bit more about it? Uh, Anything new? Well, what I can tell you is that this
2: has been one of the most successful efforts in my tenure here. This effort came out of the big budget issues that came about in 2011, when the economy tanked. Um, We saw that as a warning sign that our customers would not be willing to pay the prices that we had been charging. Uh, So we proactively uh, took a look at our budgets and cut them almost uh, 9% from one year to the next. It was 11 million in savings one year and 32 million the next. It was a, a huge cut. But the most important thing behind that was the methodology that we used and the fact that we continue to use it even today. So every year we take a look at our budget from the ground up. We look at the activity that we plan to perform and we build staffing models and other resource models based on what we know we're going to have to do. Uh, We look at our contracts. We look at the way we run our processes. We look at Other business efficiencies, um, economies of scale, how can we get more customers in here to utilize an expensive system so that the cost goes down for everybody else? Are we too contractor heavy? Should we be using more feds? How do we reduce our office footprint? How do we use technology to reduce costs? So all those conversations that were done back in 2011 are done each year now. And every year we squeeze out a little bit more waste, a little bit more inefficiency. And our the way we express our budget is through rates, which is another thing I like about this model. You can look from one year to the next how much it costs to perform these activities. And, and my favorite example here is a travel voucher. We run the travel system for Health and Human Services. Anybody that travels in the department uses our system. And I, this isn't the exact number, but l- let's just say it's $15 per transaction. We can track that from year to year and know that it went down or stayed the same, and it has remained relatively uh, flat or down. We just implemented a new system, so I think um, that's kind of an anomaly. But the principle is here that it's not a big amorphous budget that you can't describe. It's a distinct rate for a distinct service and you can compare from one year to the next. And and frankly, it it creates the good kind of behavior. When a service director in at PSC comes to me and says, I want to raise this rate from $15 to $15.50, I ask him, why is that? Is there 50 cents more value that we're giving our customers? If so, that's a great you know, maybe that makes some sense. If not, then maybe they need to sharpen their pencil and go back and see how we can either drop the rate or keep it the same. So so year over year, this has continued to help us squeeze out inefficiencies.
1: How does the Program Support Center manage the business of government? We will ask Paul Bartley, its director, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour.
0: What is the What Works Clearinghouse? How does the National Center for Education Evaluation and Regional Assistance within the U.S. Department of Education ensure the widespread dissemination of its research findings? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and much more with Joy Lesnick, Acting Commissioner, NCEE within the U.S. Department of Education. Tune in Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.
1: Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Paul Bartley, Director of the Program Support Center within the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. So Paul, you've mentioned a couple of times uh, the significance of acquisition in your portfolio. With such a a rather large uh, procurement shop, what are you doing at the Program Support Center's acquisition area uh, to more strategically execute initiatives that are designed to support, engage, and respond to the needs of your customers? And how have you enhanced the capabilities in this area? Thanks
2: for asking. Acquisitions is one of our largest activities and, as I've mentioned a couple times, is particularly large outside of the department. Our biggest customer for acquisitions is the Administration for Children and Families uh, within HHS. And we spend a lot of time and effort making sure that their procurements are, are done properly but we also have the capability to serve others. And I do often get asked, why would an, a customer outside of HHS come to you? What's the value proposition? And frankly, we've got a lot of great vehicles that folks want to use. My joke here is, you know, we don't buy rocket engines for NASA. NASA does that. That's what they're there for. But if NASA needs paper or pencils or or um, staffing, we've got some great contracts that uh, we've put together, based on a lot of experience, and they're they're really efficient, they're really cost-effective, and have high-quality providers, so people flocked us to use those. Uh, I, I like to point that out because I get questions, too, about, you know, I why are you guys in the acquisition business at all? Isn't that GSA? And GSA does some great work, and they've got uh, a set of contracts that they use. We've got a slightly different niche, and, and that's why people come to us.
1: So what is uh, the HHS Regional Support Portal, RSP?
2: The Regional Support Portal is a project that we completed last year. I'm very proud of this. The way HHS is set up, the department has 10 major operating divisions and about 15 to 18 staff divisions. So in a sense, it's very stovepiped. There are folks with varying missions. I mean, you've got Food and Drug Administration keeping our food supply safe. You've got CDC handling public health. You've got NIH doing research. These are different missions. Um, How do you get these people to learn about each other and utilize resources uh, across the HHS portfolio? The regional support portal is one answer to that. Uh, HHS has 10 regional offices, in the 10 uh, HHS regions, what the portal does is provide via a secure web gateway a way for employees, managers, leaders to log in, find out about who's in a location, what they do, how to contact them. There are, of course, um, uh, resources Connecting them to our services, so if you need um, property disposal or your mail delivered or or uh transit benefits, we um, lay that out in this website as well but the the point of it is to allow employees to work across HHS. And it's just it goes back to what I was saying earlier. There's these things that need to be done in the background that are very important that support the mission, but they're not the mission. This is one of them, having a list of the people, knowing who's who, what do they do, connecting them. I don't want NIH scientists spending any time doing that. We take care of that so that they can refer to it. They're on the list, of course but those those back office administrative type things that's what here that's what we're here to do
1: so um, how are you doing what you do uh, in a more uh, sustainable and uh, perhaps green way could you tell us about your efforts to uh, add value to your services through sustainable practices
2: there's a number of ways we do this um, I'll, I'll mention two the the first one is our Printing and publishing group. Um, we are a leader in this area in terms of showing people how to how to reduce their paper. But when they do need to have paper, we have um, sustainable practices in terms of the types of ink we use, the recycled paper. Um, so even when we're using resources uh, in a in a hard Copy format. It's it's in a sustainable way. The other way that PSC helps with sustainability is the real estate area. HHS has 53 million square feet of space. Um, My group has oversight over that. So NIH, FDA, CDC, these other large uh, operating divisions operate their space, but we oversee it from an oversight perspective and help them. coordinate ideas in terms of sustainability, how do we reduce the footprint. We, we work with GSA on plans to do that across the department.
1: So, how are you, as a director of the Program Support Center, leveraging uh, innovative branding and marketing techniques uh, to promote the benefits and competencies of your organization? One
2: way is through our website. We offer... Um, 44 different services across the areas that I mentioned real estate procurement finance health uh, things like travel call centers all of those activities are listed on our on our website and by the way the the cost of those are also listed I mentioned earlier about the prices and the way we budget if we charge $15 per travel voucher for instance that's on our website so people can go right now and look at www psc.gov and see a list of those things we do and compare those and I think one of the ideas behind the OMB move to uh, build shared services capability is to someday allow comparability between centers. So if Treasury is doing travel vouchers or Interior or Agriculture, the idea would be that at some point their prices would be out there too. And, and we can do some benchmarking and say, well, why are, why is this one an anomaly? Why is this one higher or lower? What are you guys doing that, that makes it so much better?
1: So I want to put together I, I two questions that I was sort of thinking about. And one is, perhaps you can outline for us some of your newer products and services and, and, and what opportunities are on your radar?
2: One of the areas that I think has a lot of promise is in room management and this could, kind of goes back to the idea of partnering with GSA. Right now, if you're a GSA employee, you can reserve a room in a building anywhere in the GSA system. So, if you're a Washington DC-based employee and you're flying out to San Francisco next week, you can go on their online system, choose a room to to use this touchdown space and reserve it. My idea is to open that up to the rest of government and specifically at HHS right now. I mean, obviously, we've got to bite off what we can chew. We have started piloting this uh, in the Washington, D.C. area in some of the HHS-owned space or or lease space. The idea being that regardless of what operating division you come from, you can look at the inventory of rooms and start to reserve them. And this really helps with filling space that's sitting empty. Uh, It helps folks have capabilities that they might not have before. I mean, the you know, if your agency can only afford three conference rooms and we open you up to the entire inventory, you're just multiplying your your abilities there. So there's a lot of uh, good benefits. So that's a a, a new service offering that, that we're hoping to offer as soon as we get through with the pilot. Another thing, as the health agency, we're very interested in the health of federal employees. And we have a prevention program called FedStrive, which utilizes the resources of our clinics, but also a lot of smart folks who help people do things that are um, healthy, whether it's to stop smoking or lose weight, eat right. um be more active. It's, it's really an educational campaign. Uh, it's something that we're, we're especially good at as the health agency. And it's not necessarily a new product, but it's kind of a new packaging of some of the old things
1: that we've done. How has PSE evolved over the past 20 years and what does the future hold? We will ask its director, Paul Bartley, when our conversation continues on the Business Government Hour. From forging a unity of effort in homeland security, to strategizing today how to feel the U.S. Army of tomorrow, to pursuing affordable housing, eliminating fraud, waste, and abuse in healthcare, care, and securing cyberspace, the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine. And with each edition, I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real world experience with practical scholarship. The purpose is not to offer a definitive solution to many of the management challenges facing government executives, but to provide a resource from which to draw practical, actionable recommendations on how best to confront these issues. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. We bring you insights and interviews from government executives who are changing the way government does business. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Paul Bartley, director of the Program Support Center within the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, Paul, uh, what administrative and legislative changes might be appropriate to improve existing shared services and expand them into the future?
2: Well, this is a very exciting time for shared services. The Office of Management and Budget has has stood up a group that is looking at the governance of shared services. Um, As you know, the Program Support Center is one of several uh, shared service providers. There's one at the Interior Department, one at Agriculture, there's one at FAA, NASA has shared services, there's the State Department, a number of them um, have existing, existing centers. And OMB is interested in Providing governance and management of the existing centers and and perhaps uh, working with agencies to start other centers. So this group um, has met once. There's a um, staffing component to this, too, a group that's supporting the board. The board members are all made up of of high-level officials from various agencies. But there's a a professional uh, staff, I guess you could say, um, being put together to support it so I consider that, you know, that's probably under the the category of administrative uh, changes. It's a very exciting development. On the legislative side, I know there's a group under John Marshall that is looking into legislative uh, aspects of this and – It may codify some of the things that that OMB is looking at in terms of the governance side, but I think it's also about funding and rationalizing some of this, uh, whether you're in a working capital fund or an enterprise fund or some other arrangement. You can have a lot of variability here, and I think the idea is to – just like we do in shared services, take a look at what's the best way to do something and adopt that as opposed to have a thousand flowers bloom so um so it goes back to this idea that this is a this is a journey we've we've really gone we're getting more and more smart more and more sophisticated more and more resources toward this idea
1: so you mentioned earlier uh that uh your organization uh the program support center uh as uh, 20 years old how has it evolved over the, these these 20 years and what lessons would you like to highlight that you've learned or have been learned
2: well the way the psc was created was they took functions that were in existence and and cobbled them together so so i i want to be clear about that this wasn't like NASA, where they created a completely new organization and staffed it pretty much from the ground up. It's a, if you can do it that way, it's a little bit of different uh, environment. Um, not that I regret how we did it at HHS, but um, it's a different challenge. So, so NASA. Um, Their center is in Mississippi, and they didn't have any uh, staff or infrastructure there. So they flew, you know, they moved people in, and then they grew it up. A lot of their staff is contractors. At HHS, we took a lot of federal employees, a lot of different pieces of – different agencies and put it together in one agency called the Program Support Center. So over the past 20 years, what we've been doing is really rationalizing that. um, If there were two groups doing accounting, we've merged those now. If it was four different operating divisions that donated people. They're all PSC people now. So, so it's really building the infrastructure, getting everybody to work together, coming up with some standard processes, coming up with different, um, technology tools and, and sharing them and using them across PSC. So, um, even when I arrived uh, eight or nine years ago, you could really tell the legacy parts of PSC. And federal occupational health is a good example here. Um, Not a lot of connections with the rest of PSC, not a lot of the same tools. We are all on the same budgeting tool now. That customer satisfaction survey uh, is uniform across 44 activities. It's not like just health uses it or just finance. So so the the 20 years has really helped us become a cohesive group and and utilize a lot of the better practices and 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 ditch some of the ones that that weren't that great. We just celebrated our 20th anniversary and we're kind of using it in a, in a sort of a nostalgic way to look back at the way things were and 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 celebrate a lot of the staff that have been around. We've got some folks who who were there at the beginning and We've had uh, testimonials in our newsletter on a monthly basis, and it's really satisfying to hear them talk about, you know, wow, I had no idea it would come this far. I mean, twenty years is a is a long time, and and to have it get better and better each year and actually grow, we've grown
1: quite a bit. Um, is very satisfying to me. So I I, I asked my guests uh, about the use of collaboration and partnerships to achieve. Uh, Mission results. How are you leveraging partnerships and collaborations to improve operations, achieve program outcomes, and execute on your mission?
2: I I think leveraging partnerships and collaboration are key to my success, and this is something uh, that I you know if you asked me. What makes you successful, what what helps you the most. It's finding out what other people are doing and, and frankly using their ideas. Um, I, I don't think I'm the smartest guy in the room. I think I'm smart enough to go find some smart people and find out how they do stuff and, and usually give them credit, but <laughs> adopt what, what they're doing. Um, I have made it a practice to visit private sector organizations. Procter & Gamble is kind of the you know seen in the industry as the peak uh they're they're i think they're trying to figure out what's after global business services uh they're so far along but other companies like Boeing, McDonald's, Safeway, Coca-Cola, these groups have all adopted a shared services model. So we've gone and talked to them and said how do you fulfill your mission through shared services? How do you make things more efficient? But my my collaboration uh is just as much inside government as it is outside uh we enlist help from the private sector we participate in a group with the partnership for public service i attend the ACT-I act iact meeting. so a lot of folks that are in industry related to government uh are helping us as well i've i've mentioned the omb group that they've just set up this uh, unified shared services management group uh, supporting the the new board. These guys are all um, looking into shared services. How do we make this thing work? So it, it really is a collaboration. There's there's no right answer. There's no one answer. We need everybody's help. We need everybody's opinion, and and then we can
1: move forward with this shared services concept. So you know what were some of the key ingredients to the success of your organization. And what advice would you offer a government executive looking for a shared services provider and thinking about moving their mission support services to such an arrangement?
2: Well, in terms of us being successful, I have to say that support from above has been key and you know I hear this a lot from my private sector colleagues that if the CEO or the CFO isn't on board with this don't even try it because you're not going to get anywhere and and I think having the secretary of HHS be the founder of the program support center set us set us off in the right direction and then the governance uh at present at HHS is Conducted through the Service and Supply Fund Board—that's what we call the board that oversees the fund—they um, have been extremely supportive of this concept. They understand that with their help, we provide services that they need, and and they're even fine with us uh, taking on customers from outside because they know that that means their services are going to be a little bit better and a little bit cheaper as well, because you can um, find some economies of scale when you utilize uh, outside customers. But that conversation with the board and making sure that their um, needs are met has been a really key ingredient. If you don't have, if if first of all, they don't support you or second of all, you don't pay attention to them, it's not going to work. So that's something that I think is really key. In terms of advice uh, for those looking for a provider, you really have to know what it is you're, Uh, asking the provider to do. It's kind of like that, you know, back to my earlier statement about if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. If you don't know what you want the provider to do, um, if your processes are really disorganized and inefficient, it's probably not realistic to think that somebody else that doesn't really know you that well can do them better. So uh, having that laid out, here's what we're going to do, here's what we're asking you to do, um, help us with it because you're the expert. Um, but but talk to your provider, talk to your potential provider. One of the things that it appears uh, will be part of this future is competition. Um, right now, uh, in the payroll example, there are five or, um, four different payroll providers. Um, and to a certain extent, they compete. They offer slightly different services. It's a different system. Uh, and I think that's a good thing. Um, if, if for no other reason, uh, if your service isn't that great, you can point to the competition and embarrass your current provider. So um,
1: so I think that's, uh, those are some thoughts. So, Paul, you're, you're, you're known as a smart, young, and energetic leader. Uh, what's your plans for PSC, uh, the Program Support Center, in the years to come?
2: Well, I appreciate you thinking I'm smart, <laughs> young, and
1: energetic. <laughs>
2: um, I I continue to think that PSC is one of the best places to work in government. I wish we had our own survey <laughs> uh, from the Partnership for Public Service, but uh, we're looking for people who are excited about saving the government money. When I go home for Thanksgiving, I... bore or regale, whatever you might adjective you want to apply to it, Uh, my family about how I'm saving them money and here are some ways that we're doing it. So uh, we need people who are excited like that. We need people who are creative, who come to work every day and say, I think we can do it a slightly better or a bigger way, bigger and better way. Um, How do we get those folks on board? We've got the infrastructure in place. We've built this thing over 20 years. It's starting to hum. It's it's become a well-oiled machine. We're growing every year. We grow at least 10% in terms of our budget. And by the way, that doesn't mean government's growing 10%. It means government is shrinking at least 10% where we take the activity away from. So uh, I think it's all in all um, a great proposition. And and have a
1: lot of great people working there. That's a a great transition to my last question, which is, what advice would you give someone who is thinking about a career in public service? I think a career in public
2: service is very rewarding. Um, A lot of younger people that I talk to that are just starting out, trying to figure out, you know, what do they want to be when they grow up? uh, I tell them public service... Will connect you to a mission. Uh, HHS's mission of of keeping America healthy. Uh, people understand what that is. They can picture it. They can see how their effort directly contributes to that. I, I'm not picking on the private sector because I think our system is the best in the world. And and. I'm a free enterprise advocate. But if all you're worried about is making money, it's a little bit of a different feeling when you go to work every day. Um, knowing that you're helping children be safe or the environment get better or or you're defending the country, whatever your public service um, activity might be, there's a certain pride in that. And and maybe the pay isn't as great as it could be somewhere else, but um, it, it really makes you uh, excited about coming to work when you can see progress and and really help people.
1: Great. Paul, I want to thank you for coming back in. It was a pleasure having you again. But but more importantly, I want to thank you for your dedicated service to the country.
2: I would encourage anyone interested in shared services or, in particular, utilizing shared services to www.psc.gov, that's psc.gov, for a list of activities that the Program Support Center offers uh, along with our pricing and contacts there for uh, people to
1: reach out to who can uh, explain our offerings to them. Thanks. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Paul Bartley. Deputy Assistant Secretary for Program Support at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and Director of its Program Support Center. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan. Thanks for joining us.
0: This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. What is the What Works Clearinghouse? How does the National Center for Education Evaluation and Regional Assistance within the U.S. Department of Education ensure the widespread dissemination of its research findings? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and much more with Joy Lesnick. Acting Commissioner NCEE within the U.S. Department of Education. Tune in Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.